money, deals, tribal knowledge, resources, training, coaching, partnering. We are Texas's largest real estate investor association at texasstarterkit.com. My name is Shanoa Grove. Welcome to the show. And record. So welcome everybody to our meeting. Uh, welcome to the Texas RIAs. Texas RIAs is the largest network of real estate investor associations in the great state of Texas. Uh, I'm Phil Grove, a member and one of the co-founders of the Texas RIAs. And uh, what we do is we have meetings all over Texas, Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio. We have over 100,000 members uh, and participants and attendees. And we provide services to real estate investors, a network and a community where people can collaborate, learn, partner, uh, borrow, lend, uh, get power teams and other uh, resources that are helpful for being real estate investors. And one of the other things that we provide that the community is market information. In fact, every month we publish market data to show everybody what's going on in the real estate market. So of course, when it comes to real estate investing, what is the big story? What is the big story? What do you think? Interest rates, interest rates. Okay, so interest rates have changed. So, so what are interest rates? Are, are interest rates high or low right now? High. Who thinks interest rates are high? Raise your hand if you think interest rates are high. Who thinks interest rates are low? Raise your hand if you think interest rates are low. Who's not listening to me right now? Because I only got about 10% of you voted either way. Okay, here's my perspective. Uh, I would say, my opinion, interest rates are normal, okay? I've been doing this for 20 years, right? When I started investing in real estate, for years and years and years, most of my properties I've owned for 20 years have six and a half, seven and a half percent mortgages. That's called normal interest rates. Now, for those of you that have been just kind of paying attention to this real estate thing for the last couple of years, right? We had for a brief period of time there, freakishly abnormal interest rates. Interest rates that it's very likely you will never see again in your lifetime, possibly never see again in your children's lifetime, right? Three, four, 5% more, that's not normal. Those are, that's freakishly abnormal. When I graduated from college, when I bought my first home, I was not a real estate investor, I was an engineer back then, but interest rates in 1981 got all the way up to 18%. So for you guys that are complaining about 7.5% mortgages, imagine if the mortgages were 18%. Then you'd be saying, oh, interest rates are low, right? So yeah, it's just a perspective. And that's really all it is, right? Compared to what it was, it's higher. Uh, compared to what it was before that, it's normal. Uh, compared to 1981, it's freakishly low. Uh, but I would really describe it by historical standards as normal. So we're back into a normal real estate market. Uh, we were in an abnormal market for a little while there, but don't be afraid of interest rates. They're just normal. And for most of decades and decades and decades of real estate investors investing in real estate, this is what it looks like in a normal market. So we're no longer abnormal, but we're normal. Now, when interest rates go up, what happens to home prices? What do you think? When interest rates go up, does it make home prices go up or down? Does it make, who thinks it makes home prices go down? Raise your hand. Who thinks it makes home prices go up? Raise your hand. Okay, wow, you all think it makes it go down. Here's what interest rates do to home prices. It makes them go up and down at the same time, right? Now, there are upward and there are downward forces on the real estate. And I'll tell you something about real estate, having been doing this for 20 years. Here's the thing about real estate. Real estate doesn't care much about interest rates, and I'll show you why in a minute. It really doesn't care about the economy. People think it cares about the economy. Not really. During the Great Depression, the Great Depression, real estate prices went down a whopping 6%, nothing. During the great pandemic, we just lived through that, a one in a hundred year pandemic, right? During the great pandemic, interest rates went up 30%. It's not the economy, right, that drives interest rates. 
Uh, so then what drives, I'm sorry, that drives real estate prices. So then what drives real estate prices? Real estate, here's what real estate cares about, supply and demand. It's the purest market there is, supply and demand, okay? When there's more demand uh, than there is supply, prices go up. When there's more supply than there is demand, prices go down, that's it. Like 2008, what happened? The real estate market crashed in 2008. Why? Well, it's pretty obvious when you look back and see it. 2002, three, four, five, six, seven, right? We had something called subprime lending. Instead of requiring people to have jobs and credit and income in order to borrow money, you simply went into a bank and they held a mirror under your nose. And if they saw fog, you got the loan, right? That was the loan application process back in 2005, six, and seven, right? And it turns out that was a really stupid way to give out money because in 2008, all of the banks went bankrupt. You know, the government <clears throat> actually changed the definition of bankruptcy in 2008, all that mark-to-market -mark stuff that was toying with the definition, but by any real definition, the banks went bankrupt and they bounced along the bottom and eventually they got back into the lending business. But up until 2008, money was free and loose and easy. So anybody that wanted to borrow money could borrow all the money they want. <clears throat> and what did the builders do? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> That's something in my throat. The banks borrowed tons of money. And they built houses as far as the eye could see. And if you look at housing starts 2003, four, five, six, seven, off the charts, we're still not caught up to it, off the charts. So they were building houses as far as the eye could see. <clears throat> and then who was buying all those houses? Subprime borrowers, because anybody could get a loan. So the banks were giving out free money to the builders to build the houses and then free money to the buyers to buy the houses. And it all worked great for a few years there. And then in 2008, it just stopped. Lending stopped. It didn't slow down, it hit a wall. It just stopped, right? And when lending just stopped, what happened, right? All the buyers just stopped, they just disappeared. You couldn't get a loan in 2008. I'm exaggerating, but just a little bit. Uh, but they had all these houses that needed to be sold. Huge supply and demand just stopped. And when you had a mountain of supply and no more demand, crash, the market crashed. Well, after the banks got back into the lending business, they weren't as free and easy as they were before. Now it's a lot more challenging to get a loan. And it's even in recent years when money was cheap, you still have to have credit, job income. It's not as easy as it used to be to get a loan. So building has been building but they haven't been keeping up. And if you look at the United States on a whole, we are actually in the middle of a housing shortage. Did you know that? Some of you may have read about that. We actually have six million more buyers than we have houses available, okay? So we have a housing shortage. Now, normally when you have a housing shortage, right, more demand than supply, that pushes prices up. <clears throat> So yeah, we have upward force <clears throat> on prices. And Thomas, Thomas, I gotta get something to uh, eat. <clears throat> I got something in my throat, like potato chips or something. Uh, so if you can get me something I can uh, chew on like potato chips or something, it'll, it'll help me clear my throat. <laughs> no, I, I'm serious, it's a speaker trick. Uh, potato chips have a certain amount of coarseness, but they have an oil and it, it coats your throat. So believe it or not, if you're ever publicly speaking, and your throat gets hoarse, you eat potato chips. It's a trick. Um, I'm, I'm not just liking potato chips, so. <laughs> so yeah, the housing shortage is pushing prices up, but then we have something else going on, and that is interest rates have gone up, and when interest rates go up, houses are less affordable, right? So fewer people can actually afford to buy a house. So the number of buyers has gone down, and that pushes prices down. So you have certain things pushing prices up and you have other forces pushing prices down. And when all of those forces get pushed together into a blender, what happens? Well, I'm gonna show you what's going on in Texas. Across the great state of Texas, prices are down a whopping 1%. Nothing. The market is flat. 
uh, flat as a pancake. Now, I will say each city is a little different, and we'll dive into some of the details for some of the different cities uh, in a minute. Now, the volume of sales is down. What does that mean? There's fewer sellers, there's fewer buyers. So the number of houses being bought and sold is down. It's gone down, but the prices are flat, or really down 1%, which I consider completely uh, flat. And again, we'll dive into the details uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes. Now, there is something else going on <clears throat> with the buyers and the sellers. All of the buyers who bought their house or refinanced their house in the last several years, when interest rates were freakishly low, right? They got those three, four, five percent mortgages, and the sellers don't want to sell, right? Uh, and what's interesting is usually two-thirds of houses that are sold are just resale houses, people selling their house so they can buy another house. That's two-thirds of houses. And about a third of houses that sell are new houses, new construction. But that's actually now reversed, right? Because what's happened is resale houses are not selling. Nobody wants to sell. Because if I sell my house where I got my three, four, five percent mortgage, I'm gonna have to get a new mortgage to buy another house, thank you. And my new mortgage is gonna be like 7% or more, and I wanna pay 7% or more so resellers are holding back, right? So that's constricting the supply, which is pushing prices up. But the builders are filling the gap because new construction is flying off the shelf because we still have a pretty strong uh, market. But then there's something else going on. It's getting harder and more expensive to get money. So building is slowing down. And if building doesn't keep up because we already have a housing shortage, eventually that's going to push prices higher. So what's going to happen? Nobody knows what the future holds exactly. Uh, and by the way, I hope I can present this in a credible way, in a non-biased way. I'm not here to sell you anything. I don't have a vested interest in trying to convince you that the market's going up or down or sideways, okay? I have strategies as a real estate investor where I can make money in up markets, down markets, and sideways markets. Sometimes it's easy to buy and hard to sell. Sometimes it's easy to sell and hard to buy. It's never easy to buy and easy to sell. But I will say my general preference is I prefer when it's easy to buy. And it hasn't been easy to buy for the last several years, but it's getting easier. Which for me as a real estate investor, I actually am kind of excited that the market is no longer on fire, that the market has settled down. What is it gonna do in the future? Nobody knows for sure but we can make some educated bets. Now, when it comes to the stock market, I have no idea. I do not believe that it's even possible to predict the stock market. It's completely speculative. When it comes to the economy, I really have no idea. I think it's almost impossible to predict the economy. Real estate, on the other hand, is not so complex. And the reason is because all real estate cares about is supply and demand. And those are pretty predictable because we know how many people are having babies and we know how many people are moving to Texas. So we know how many people need a place to live and we even know how many houses that we have for them to live in and we even know how many housing starts, how many buildings are under construction. So we have all the data, right? We have it all. And it's not that hard to predict. Now, what's gonna happen in the future? I don't know, right? A lot of experts think that interest rates may peak up a little bit more, but then a lot of the experts think then they're gradually gonna start to come down again. If real estate prices do gradually start to come down again, that's gonna put upward forces on real estate. So because it's gonna increase the demand and we're not increasing the supply, so that would probably make another run up in prices, okay? But then who knows exactly what's gonna happen. By the way, when people ask about interest rates versus home prices, I thought I'd share a very interesting chart with you. This is interest rates versus home prices going all the way back to 1975. From 1975 to 1981, there it is, interest rates on mortgages got all the way up to 18%. Crazy. And when real estate prices went up, guess what? Home prices went up. And real estate prices came down, I'm sorry, when interest rates came down, guess what, home prices went up. And when interest rates went up and down, up and down, up and down, guess what, home prices went up. 
Now, there are little bubbles here. That was that little 2008 housing bubble. Remember that bubble? Right? So there are little short-term spikes and bubbles. But for the most part, there's not much correlation between interest rates and home prices, other than home prices always go up, although from one year to the next, they might go up or down a little or a little less. So Texas, let's look at Texas. The average sales price for a house in Texas is $423,000. That's the average, and it's actually up 2%. Median price, uh, that's the average median price home, that's where the highest number of buyers and sellers are, uh, is $340,000. It's actually down uh, 1%. But the number that I look at more than anything else is this one right here in the middle, months of inventory, months of inventory. What does that mean? Let me put that in perspective. One way to look at inventory is this, months of inventory. If we stopped listing any more houses for sale, no more houses available, and we're not going to sell any more, okay? We're going to just sell what we got oh, until we run out. Uh, that would take three and a half months. We have three and a half months of total inventory, right? Which is also another way to look at that. That's the average amount of time it takes to sell any house. Some more, some less, some much more, some much less. Now, to put that in perspective, here's the same. They say if there's more than six months of inventory, you have a buyer's market. If there's less than six months of inventory, you have a seller's market. If there's right around six months of inventory, you have a neutral market. We have across the great state of Texas, 3.5 months of inventory. By any historical perspective, we are in a pretty strong seller's market. Now, it's not as strong as it was a year ago, where it was 2.6 months of inventory, but I would describe that as a virtually freakishly strong seller's market. Now, pending sales, uh, pending sales is down a little bit, and the amount of houses available, active listings, is up a little bit, which shouldn't be a surprise, uh, because that's why the inventory has gone up. If you look at back over the last three years, 2021, Real estate prices were up 18%, almost 20%. 2022, prices went up another 10%. Uh, 2023, average prices are down 1%, or I would say flat. If you bought a house in the last year, you're looking at the market and saying it hasn't done anything. If you bought a house three years ago, you're looking at the market and say, wow, I'm a lot richer than I was three years ago. So congratulations, and that's just perspective. Let's jump into some of the other cities, starting with Dallas. So here we are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, the average price, this is not a typo, in Dallas is 514,000. Uh, and it's actually up 3%. Look at that. Uh, median price, uh, 406, down 1%. Uh, but look at this number. Now this is really interesting. Months of inventory in Dallas, 2.7 months of inventory. This is a strong, seller's market in Dallas. And I don't know why this is, but we've been tracking this for 20 years. And I don't know why what I'm about to tell you is true, but I'm gonna tell you for 20 years it's true. Dallas has always been the bellwether for Texas. If you wanna know what's gonna happen in Houston and Austin, you look at Dallas. When the condo market goes down in Dallas, three months later, it goes down in Austin and Houston. It's, it's always ahead of the curve. I don't know why. I have no idea why. But if you go back 20 years, it's always ahead of the curve. And something interesting is happening in Dallas, and that is inventory is falling. And the market is heating up, interestingly enough. Total listings is actually up in Dallas, but only 5%, not much, right? Pending sales is down, uh, but only 16%. Uh, total closed sales, it's only down 8%, right? So it's very interesting. Now Dallas, going back three years, 2021, up 20%, great year. Uh, 2022, another great year, up another 15%. Dallas has got the best appreciation uh, in the uh, state of Texas. Uh, and this year it's flat. Uh, so that's Dallas. Uh, diving into some of the other cities, Houston, a little more affordable, average price 420, uh, up 2.5%. Median price down 0.3%, less than, less than 1%. Months of inventory, 3.3, a little more uh, than Dallas. Closed sales down 4%. Um, so not a whole huge uh, difference. Uh, Austin, Austin is the most expensive city 
uh, by a pretty good margin in Texas. Average price of a house in Austin, $583,000. That is not a typo. And we did a little research on this, and it turns out that Austin is actually Latin for San Francisco. Yeah, did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, the root Latin term. Well, yeah, no, actually, Austin uh, is turning into uh, Silicon Hills, right? Uh, Tesla, Amazon, Apple, all the high-tech companies, uh, Samsung, they're all building, you know, factories and they're moving their headquarters uh, to Austin. Uh, and they're moving in all their high-dollar uh, high uh, employees, right? So they got a lot of six-figure people they're bringing in. Uh, and all that money and all those uh, businesses are uh, just uh, jacking up the prices uh, in Austin, Texas, uh, making Austin now the most expensive city uh, in Texas. And um, months of inventory a little higher, 3.8. Uh, but Austin had something a little different. Austin's unique in this way. 2021 in Austin, uh, prices went up 30% in one year, in one year. And I was there. And I got to tell you, there were months in Austin where we had 0.4 months of inventory, 0.3 months of inventory. That's less than two weeks of inventory. It's never happened before. And what was happening back in 2021, somebody put a house on the market for sale and they'd get nine, 10, 12 offers in a weekend, just like that. So the buyers would come in from California, wherever they're coming in, they'd put an offer, they'd get outbid. So they'd put an offer on another house, they'd get outbid. They'd put an offer on another house, they'd get outbid, right? 10 people making offers on every single house as soon as it came on the market. And so finally the buyers just got so mad that they just started getting mad at the realtor and just said, I'm not getting outbid, just give them whatever it's gonna cost, right? And, and literally people were buying houses well above the appraised value and just bringing the extra money to the table because the bank will not loan more than the appraised value, uh, but it became such a frenzy that it was kind of a freakish market for a while. And you know, less than two weeks of inventory, I mean, I've never heard of something like that. And prices in one year went up 30%. Next year, they went up another 10%. And then this year, it's settled down. Uh, in fact, Austin's actually had the correction uh, of about 10%. Now, if you look at Austin and Dallas over the last three years, they're the same, right? Uh, went up 30%, but the difference in Austin is it went up 40% and came back 10, right? Versus Dallas, which just kind of more gradually went up 30 and, and, and leveled off. Um, active listings uh, up a little, pending sales, uh, what is that, uh, up, up a little. Uh, but the volume's pretty much flat, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, obviously, all that run-up of prices created a little housing uh, building uh, boom. Uh, and that bo building boom is, is, is now settling down, uh, and that's why the market's kind of adjusted. And Austin is the one major marketplace with prices have actually adjusted. Uh, and it's all perspective, right? If you bought a house last year in Austin, you're thinking, wow, the market sucks. If you bought a house three years ago in Austin, you're thinking the market's great, right? It's just perspective. And then finally, San Antonio, uh, the most affordable city in Texas, average price is 388, and it's flat. Uh, median price 322, down uh, 1%. 3.9 months of inventory, a little more inventory. Uh, sales volume down 4%. They went up 16%, 12%, and then down uh, 1%. So that's pretty much what's going on in the market uh, here in Texas. And before I go on, I do wanna open it up to the audience and ask you guys, do you have any questions about what do you think is going on in the market or what do you think of the market? What do you guys think? What, well, well, raise your hand if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. What's 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 war in Ukraine and Israel going to do in our market? I doubt anything, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a guru. I don't have a uh, crystal ball. But I mean, real estate cares about supply and demand. So government shutdowns have happened many times. Republicans and Democrats argue over the budget. It's never affected the real estate market. Okay. Um, will they shut down again in another 60 days or whatever? Probably. Will it affect the real estate market? I doubt it. Um, if something dramatic happens that affects interest rates, making interest rates go up, uh, that could affect the market a little bit. But there's not huge things, right? 
I mean, we have this going on. We have upward and downward. Right? What the market really cares about is supply and demand. How many people are having babies? How many people are moving to Texas? How many houses we need? And how many houses we got? Right? That, those are the, the main things. Um, interest rates, what's going to happen with interest rates? I don't know. They could go up a little more. Uh, if they go up a little more, the demand will go down a little bit. And that could cause some downward pressure on houses. But we still have a housing shortage, which is pushing it up. So you know, our forecast for the next year for the real estate market is this. We don't really expect much to change, right? There's not any big thing that is likely to make it go up a lot. There's not any big thing that is make, likely to make it go down a lot. You know, that's, that's our best guess. Um, I can say though, again, that, you know, whether it goes up or down, you can make money flipping houses and, and, and buying and holding houses no matter what. I've been buying rental properties for 20 years. Uh, some years are better than others, but over 20 years, my properties have doubled, doubled, and doubled, right? So I have properties that I bought for 150,000 that are worth $850,000 today, right? Do I care that prices went down in Austin 10% this year? Not really. There's nothing close to 2007 happening today, right? We didn't have free money. We didn't have subprime lending. We had a housing boom, right? But not as big as it was in 2003, 4, 5, and 6. So there's not any big thing that is affecting supply and demand. We have, the story is we have a housing shortage and interest rates hikes, right? One pushes it up, one pushes it down. You level it all out, and it's flat, right? And, and, and you know, could it move a little more one way or the other? Sure, right? But, you know, there's nothing huge like what happened in 2008 with subprime lending, right? What about the condo market? Okay, you're not gonna like what I have to say. We call condos the canary in the coal mine. And by that I mean, when the market starts to go soft, condos are the first to go. When the market comes back, they're the last thing to come back. So when the condo market is high, if you can sell a condo, you can sell anything. That's the saying. Right, and I, and I hope I'm not trying to offend anybody or anything like that, but that's just, that's why we call, and, and is it fair? No, life's not fair, I don't know why. Well, I do know why. The, the problem with condos is condo fees create this perception that they're more expensive than houses. And you can use the argument all day long, oh, but they take care of the lawn and they take care of this and take care of that. All this stuff is included that you would otherwise have to pay, but that's not how buyers think. They say, how much does it cost a month to own whatever square feet of <clears throat> whatever, and condos foot for foot are gonna cost more, right? Even though they're not factoring in all the costs of maintenance and whatever else they would have to pay for themselves. And for that reason, they're the canary in the coal mine, right? So if you ever wanna know like which direction inventory's gonna go, look at condos first. Condos always comes well before anything else, right? First thing to go, last thing to come back. But what is your challenge with the condo? You bought it and you fixed it, now you want to sell it or rent it? So you bought it with the intention of fixing it and now you can't fix it. Well, I mean, there's lots you can do. Wholesale to somebody else, right? I mean, you know, if, if you can't for money, time, reason, or anything else, you know, fix it, sell it to somebody who can. There's a lot of people probably right in this room that would love to buy a fixer-upper, a fixer and flipper. So yeah, that's called wholesaling. Wholesaling where you just buy a property, and then sell it, right? Hopefully for more than you bought it for to somebody else who's looking to actually buy it and fix it and flip it. Well, no, I mean, did you get a loan or did you buy it for cash? You got a loan. Okay. Um, I'll say something else. Is, is it livable? Could you, could you live in it? Oh, you're living in it. So it's a livable house. It, it, it could be fixed up, but it is, it's livable. Okay. So, so I'll, I'll give you a tip and I'll give anybody a tip. If you ever have a property and you need to sell it fast and you need to sell it for a premium price, uh, here's the trick. And, and it's kind of a last resort, but here's what you do. Sell it with seller financing. If you offer a house where you provide the loan to the borrower because they maybe couldn't qualify for a loan from the bank, it will sell faster. It will sell for a premium price. Seller financing. So let's say you have a $100,000 mortgage on this house, okay? When you sell a house and you provide the financing, it's normal 
for the house to sell for 10, 20, 30% above the appraised value because that's what it's worth. What is a house worth? Is a house worth what it appraises for? No, that has nothing to do with what a house is worth. A house is worth what somebody will be willing to pay for it, okay? And if somebody gets a house with financing, they will pay 10, 20, 30% above the appraised value. The appraised value is what a bank would loan. That has nothing to do with what a house is worth. It's what a house is worth in a retail market to an able-bodied buyer that has a loan, that has their own money from a bank or whatever, okay? So if you sell a house with financing, on average, there are 14 buyers for every one seller, okay? If you just sell a house traditionally, like higher realtor put in the MLS, you know, you're dealing with you know, three months of inventory, four months of inventory. You still have a decent market, but condos are a little harder to sell. I don't know specifically what the inventory in condos is, but I guarantee it's more than houses. Now, every condo is different. I don't know where it is and what it is and exactly what you got, but I'm making some generalizations about condos. Canary in the coal mine, harder to sell, first thing to go. But if you really want to get, let that thing go, you sell it with seller financing, it'll sell for a premium price and it'll sell in a short amount of time, it'll sell uh, with premium financing, right? Pre premium payment, okay? Question in the back. So like Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio? So, well, you mean for buy and hold or for uh, uh, fix and flip or for what? Uh, fix and flip. Fix and flip. Um, well, I mean, I have students that ask me that question all the time. And I would say um, Dallas or Houston, uh, simply because they're the biggest market, uh, you know, by far, five times bigger than Austin or San Antonio. Um, San Antonio is easier to make money in than Austin. Austin's hyper-competitive. Um, I don't know why this is. Now, if, if I just look at the market, Dallas versus Houston, I would say Houston's a better real estate investor market. And the reason is, if you look at how Texas is designed, basically a third of Texas drains through Houston. Houston's kind of the drain uh, for Texas. And it's totally flat as a pancake. So every time it rains, it floods in Houston. And flooding is good for real estate investors. It creates disruptions, right? People have flooded houses and they can't afford to fix them. So it, it just, it, it, anything that, you know, hailstorms, Texas, you know, Dallas has great hailstorms. <laughs> we got that going for us here. Uh, Dallas has some good weather in the winter. We get some storms and ice storms. That, 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 that's good for real estate investors. Uh, you know, we even get some tornadoes here. That's good, right? You know but you can't compete with the floods, right? <laughs> Which Houston gets the floods. Uh, and then Houston has a, an oil industry that's like this, right? So there's constantly people losing their jobs and other people moving in to get new jobs. So all of that turmoil. And then one more thing Houston has, Houston has crazy zoning. In Houston, you could build a, a, porn, star, a porn shop next to a school, right? I mean, there's, there's, you can build anything anywhere. There's no rules. Like you can build sky rise, house, church, right? Whatever. I mean, there's just oh, crazy. Any, anything goes. And it's just kind of the wild, wild west uh, of real estate investing. So given all of that, I would believe that Houston would be a better place to get started investing. That being said, I literally have thousands of students that I've taught how to invest. And I will say the students I have in Dallas make a little more money when they get started than Houston. And I'm not 100% sure why. Now, Houston does have one other, I'm sorry, uh, Dallas does have uh, one other thing going for it. It's kind of interesting. Dallas has Fort Worth. Fort Worth, I don't want to offend anybody, it's, it's cheaper, right? It's kind of Dallas's poorer baby brother. So you can invest in both, right? They're both a rock throw away. And you can get anything in Dallas, you can get it in, in, in uh, Fort Worth, you know, at, at, at 70 cents on the dollar. So it's just a cheaper parallel market within a rock throw that you can also invest in, right? All right, other questions? Yeah, go ahead. So, so ask a specific question. So Airbnb and buy and, and, buy and hold. Yeah, it's still profitable, it's still, you know, things to do. Which one, Airbnb or rental? Bo both. both, both, okay. I'm a huge proponent of rental properties, okay? I've been buying rental properties uh, for 20 years. Uh, I now have a $30 million portfolio of rental properties. And what I love most about rental properties 
is over a long period of time, they go up and up and up and up in value while somebody else pays off the mortgages. Okay, so I now have less than $5 million of total debt on a $30 million portfolio. So my net worth went up $25 million by doing nothing other than buying rental properties and letting somebody pay the mortgage off, right? And then just letting it ride for 20 years. So I think everybody should buy rental properties as a long-term strategy. It's gonna build your wealth. 20 years from now, you're not gonna remember anything I talked about tonight. But if you bought yourself a rental property, you will be that much richer, right, 20 years from now than if you didn't buy a rental property. So if you just take one takeaway from this whole day is go buy a rental property, right? Just buy one, right? It'll change your life 20 years from now. Now, Airbnb is another question, okay? Airbnb became very popular over the last several years because people figured out that you could buy a rental property and by just furnishing it, you could rent it out and get like four times the amount of income from that property than if you just rent it out, you know, like a regular house. Uh, so what happened is everybody started buying and, and turning their, their rental properties into Airbnbs, okay? But what's happened is Airbnbs got so hot and so popular, okay, that the market has kind of crashed. The, the supply went way up. Everybody turned all their, oh, Airbnb, you get four times the rent, you know, make it an Airbnb. So we doubled the amount of supply, the amount of, but, we, we, and, and Airbnb, there's still a lot of people who want an Airbnb, but we don't have twice as many people who want an Airbnb, supply and demand. So we doubled the supply, we didn't double the demand, prices crashed, right? So if you look at what you can get for rent in Airbnb, it's, it's gone down in many cases, you know, 50% uh, versus a couple of years ago. Uh, now, the other huge problem uh, we have with Airbnbs is the government keeps changing the rules, right? Like making it illegal. Like in Dallas, it's virtually illegal, right? I mean, so, right, so, so I had an Airbnb in Fort Worth and I spent $30,000 furnishing the darn thing and then they passed some ordinance, said you can't have an Airbnb in this neighborhood anymore. And just like that, I'm like, that sucks, you know? So now I got like, you know, a whole uh, freaking, uh, uh, you know, truck full of furniture, right? Because, you know, and I, I, I had to sell it. Now, fortunately, I bought it at the right price. And I still made some money on it, uh, just selling it. The cities keep changing their ordinances. And so you can buy yourself a Airbnb and then just like that, boom, sorry, you're out of business. You're not allowed to do that anymore. Uh, so there, there's been challenges. Those are the two big challenges with Airbnb. Well, start, right, number one. Uh, but I'll give you the million dollar tip when it comes to buy and hold. Um, inner city, inner city, not suburbs, okay? So what do I want to buy and hold property to do? I want it to double in value. I want it to double in value. And remember, it's all supply and demand, okay? So the best way to determine the location for a rental property is pull it up on Google Satellite View. Give me the address of your house. Let me look at it from space. I can look at your house from space and from space, I can tell you whether or not it's a good rental property. Because what could I possibly see from space? And the answer is buildable land. Because if you're ever buying real estate, anywhere near where they're still building houses, the value cannot go up any more than construction costs go up. Do construction costs go up? A tiny bit. You're not gonna get rich because of a tiny little cost of living adjustment. You wanna own property where there's no more land to build on. In the inner cities, right, that's where not everybody wants to live, but the highest percentage of people want to live. So you have growing demand, but no more supply because there's no more land to build on. And when you have growing demand and no more supply, that's when the prices double and double again. So you want to go where there's no more construction. That's the biggest tip that I learned 20 years in. And it took me a couple of years to figure that out. When I started buying rental properties 20 years ago, I didn't know that. And I was buying for discount, I was buying for cash flow, and I was buying for all these things that I thought were the right answer. And then I realized over time, none of that really matters. What matters is which property is gonna double, 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 right? And it turns out the inner city properties are the ones that made me wealthy, right? Well, the suburban properties didn't do much. They made me a little wealthy, but the inner city made me very wealthy. Here, here's what happens with demand. Demand is population. 
Most of it's migration. Ratio of people moving in versus people moving out. So two bets you gotta make with Dallas. Are people keeping, gonna keep having babies and keep moving to Dallas? What do you think? Yep. yep. So what are the odds that's not gonna happen? I'd say not many odds would say that's not gonna happen, okay? Dallas is not a one-trick pony, right? It's, it's like if I'm buying rental properties in uh, Colleen, you got a one industry town, right? It's, it's an army base. Army wakes up one day and says, you know, we're gonna move this base to, you know, to Toledo, Ohio, or whatever. Colleen will dry up and blow away. That's the end of Colleen, right? Dallas has a million different businesses, industries. It's a very diversified. I don't think anything short of a nuclear bomb is gonna keep Dallas from just continuing to grow and grow and grow. And if you ask any expert, they're gonna tell you the same thing. So you're gonna have plenty of growing migration in Dallas. Question in the back. So you wanna flip a fourplex, buy and hold a fourplex. What do you wanna do with a fourplex? You wanna buy it and rent it out. Why do you want a fourplex instead of four houses? Just out of curiosity. Well, you got four houses, you got four people that rent them and four people that pay every month. I mean, what, why a fourplex versus four, four houses? I'm just, it probably, maybe, a little bit. I'm gonna tell you something about fourplexes and duplexes. They don't appreciate as well as single family. So, you know, if you buy four houses and, and one duplex and you hold them for 10 years, four houses will all, always make you a lot more money. Okay, they just, duplexes and fourplexes do not appreciate as well single family. Go back 20 years, look at the numbers, right? They get a little more cash flow. But here's the other thing you're gonna learn about rental properties. If you hold a property for 10 years, how much money do you make? You make the cash flow plus the appreciation. When you add up the cash flow net, I'm talking net, not gross. Everybody lies about cash flow, okay? Like if a property rents for $1,600 a month and the mortgage payment is $1,200 uh, $1, a month, uh, what is the cash flow? 400, 400 is a lie. That's a lie, that's, that's gross. You have vacancies, you, ha you, ha you have depreciation, you gotta take depreciation, you always use property management, you always use property management. The actual net is about 80 bucks, right? Which is a thousand a year, which is nothing. And, and that's why I say there's no real cash flow, okay? It's, it's a myth. People tell me, oh, I'm getting cash flow. I know they're lying, okay? because it's, it's a myth, and I'm exaggerating, but I'm doing it for effect here. You, you got a property that gets some cash flow, here's what happens. Boom, hailstorm, new roof, $8,000. You just wiped out a year and a half of cash flow. Okay, you get caught up, you're making some money, you're up, oh, new air conditioner, 10,000, right? You just lost another year and a half of cash flow. You get caught up, up, oh, make ready, you know, paint carpet, new remodel, right? Another 10,000, 12,000, you just wiped out another year and a half of cash flow. Cash flow, the net, the real cash flow, not the gross, but the net, it's not that significant. You get a little more cash flow from a fourplex than four houses, but not enough, not nearly as much appreciation. And if you look at a 10-year hold, like you're gonna hold a property for 10 years and you add up the total cash flow and the total appreciation on a typical house over 10 years, the appreciation trumps the cash flow 10X. So then when you really understand that, you start to understand this is not a cash flow play, this is an appreciation play. And the cash flow is really not that significant anyway. Because you got $80 net cash flow, what is that, a thousand a year? Is that gonna affect your life, your lifestyle? Not at all, you'd have to own a thousand of those houses before you made real money, right? You wanna make real money, flip houses. There's a million things you can do to generate lots of income. But it's not gonna be owning rental properties. They don't generate a lot of income. But, but they do appreciate like crazy. But I'm gonna tell you, single family always do better than duplexes or fourplexes. So you're, you're asking about the idea where you buy a house, instead of renting the house out for $1,000 a month, you rent each room in the house out for $1,000 a week, right? You turn it into an assisted living facility. Yep, we, we know about that. We, we know people who do that. Have you had in your I, I do not. Uh, I own some group houses. I have some halfway houses and, and other things like that. I don't have an assisted living house. But I have, I, I have friends that do, right? So, so, so my students and, and people do. Um, the thing you have to look at is regulatory issues. Um, you're gonna have to have staffing. You gotta figure out what level of support you're gonna do. You're not gonna do memory care. You're not gonna do high levels of support. You're gonna have an assisted living, but it's gonna be light assisted living. They have different levels of assisted living. You're gonna have people that can cook for themselves and, 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 and mostly do things for themselves. 
um, but needs some level of care, like a nurse that comes in for a certain number of hours a week or whatever. Uh, but you gotta look at the regulatory issues. Like most states, you have to, for example, put in commercial fire systems. And that's really expensive. Putting the, the, the little uh, fire things in the ceiling costs like $100,000 plus. I don't know why, it's kind of a racket, but uh, you're probably gonna have to do that with the house. So you're gonna have to retrofit the house with wide doors and uh, easy access and sprinkler systems and all of these things that make it compliant to the regulatory issues. You're gonna have to have the right staffing, nursing, doctors on call, whatever. Uh, and what I've discovered from the people I know that do this is you're gonna have to have at least maybe 20 houses. You're gonna have to have quite a number of houses before you start to before you start to get efficiencies of scale, right? Because like you know, you don't want to have one nurse, right? One nurse goes on vacation. Now you're nurseless, right? So you got to get another nurse, right? Or or maybe three nurses on a rotation. So you got to have enough of these things to 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 get the efficiencies of scale. Find a staffing company and ask them what their charges, what the models are. I don't know all the regulatory stuff, so you're going to have to dig into that figure out if the house is worth it, putting in the sprinkler system and, and making it retro uh, fit uh, capable. Uh, but I do know people that do that. It's a, it's a specialty in real estate. So, and, and yeah, you might be able to generate more than normal uh, cash flow on such a property, sure, for sure. Question in the back. Construction. No construction, yes. No construction, yes. Yes. Yeah, we love flipping in the suburbs. Uh, seller financing, short sales, there's all kinds of ways you can make money uh, in the suburbs. But I don't buy and hold in the suburbs. Because if you're competing with new construction, you're, you're not going to win, right? The, the value of a property will never be worth any more than whatever it costs to build another property. So if somebody buys a brand new house in the suburb, I get it. You get twice the house for your money in the suburb. I get that, right? And you live in it for five years, you go to sell it. What do all the buyers want? Big, nice new house. What are you selling? A big, nice-ish new-ish house, right? But right down the street and over there, there's a whole bunch of big, nice new houses. You're competing with new construction and you can never win, right? If, if, if it's make versus buy, they're gonna, they're gonna just get the new one, right? It's so, so you're gonna have to do something to get them to want your used house versus the nice new house down the street. And the only thing you probably do is spend more money to make it even nicer or remodel it or sell it for less money. And that's why you're just not gonna get the appreciation. Uh, from those properties. Um, and then the other thing you got to think about when you're buying real estate, what is a property? Land, house, okay? In the inner city, you have expensive land, right? In the suburbs, you have cheap land. So if you're going to spend $500,000 buy a house in the inner city, what are you getting? You're getting a $100,000 house sitting on a $400,000 lot. In the suburbs, what are you getting? You're getting a $400,000 house on a $100,000 lot, okay? Most of the money went into the house. And that's why you get a lot more house for your money in the suburbs, that's obvious, right? And people like that, oh, you get a lot more house for the money. But what is the appreciating part of the asset and what is the depreciating part of the asset? The house is the depreciating part of the asset. Houses crumble to dust. You gotta replace the roof, you gotta replace the flooring, you gotta replace the doors, you gotta replace the appliance. Everything about a house ultimately crumbles to dust. If you let it go, it'll eventually be nothing left. The land appreciates while the houses depreciate. In most cases, the land appreciates faster than the houses depreciate. But if your goal is to get wealthy, you wanna own what? The best land possible, which is gonna be the inner city because that's where you're buying land with cheap house versus house with cheap land. Make sense? Yeah. All right, I do wanna get into our next presentation. Any last question from you guys? One more, you get one more. A absolutely, so what's going on with the housing market? It's, people gotta live somewhere, either a house or, or an apartment building. And yes, we've had a boom in apartment buildings, so, so that is true. And there's a, a little bit of a bust going on in apartment buildings. Now here's the difference between apartments. So we do commercial, we do residential. Here's what's going on with apartment buildings. Commercial real estate investments are always short-term investments, okay? In residential loans are typically 30-year loans, right? Commercial loans are typically like five-year loans. They could be longer, but it's pretty typical that commercial deals are like five-year deals. 
And the reason is because like I invest in commercial apartment buildings. But like I said earlier, I don't want to tie my money up for the next 30 years. I'm willing to tie my money up for the next five years, but not for 30 years. So with commercial syndications, what they normally do is they buy a property, they get a five-year loan, could be more, but they get like a five-year loan. They make improvements, raise the rents, you know, maybe make other improvements to generate more income, net operating income, and then they sell it again and, and get a profit over a period of five years. It's not unusual. You can double your money in an apartment building in five years. But what that means is these properties are being bought and sold continuously, and they're getting refinanced continuously, like typically every five years. But what happened with interest rate is what? With interest rates, it has affected the apartment buildings because there's a bunch of apartment buildings that got interest rates of 4% and now they're refinancing at 8%, right? And the apartment building may not have enough income from the rent to pay the higher mortgage, right? And it's only because the mortgages are coming due because these are short-term mortgages instead of long-term mortgages that you have this problem. If everybody had adjustable rate mortgages, you'd have the same problem in the residential space. In the residential space, people have fixed mortgages and they're cheap, right? But in commercial, uh, the mortgages uh, turn over. Uh, so there's a lot of things going on in apartment buildings where the apartment buildings are refinancing, they don't generate enough income, and usually that's because a lot of people made a lot of money in commercial apartment buildings, and there were a lot of people doing what I describe as not good deals. They were over-leveraging, over-borrowing, they were doing a deal that only worked if you could get four or five percent money. And now that you can't get four or five percent money, the deals don't work anymore. I would say those were poorly structured, poorly underwritten deals, right? And when you do things wrong and the market changes, you pay the price. And so now there are some cash calls going on. Cash calls are where the sponsor, the person who put that deal together, tells all their investors, hey guys, uh, we don't have enough money to refinance, so I need you all throw some more money in the pot. And I always like to say when it comes to commercial real estate, a good deal should never go bad, uh, but it may go long. And by long, I mean, if, if a deal was structured right, like an apartment building, you know, you're still getting income, you're still getting rent, right? You should still be able to pay the mortgage. Maybe the market softens, maybe you can't sell it in five years when you expected to sell it, but you're still getting income, and if it was structured right, you should still be able to keep going, right? Yeah, maybe we can't sell and get all our money back, but at least we're gonna keep our money and, and, and keep the property, and eventually the property will go up and the market will come back, right? But, but some of these deals were not structured to, to go long. Some of them were structured to go bad, and there are some properties going bad right now. Texas's largest real estate investor association at texasstarterkit.com. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe, comment, Share with other investors or join us directly at texasstarterkit.com.